Corinthians 14, 1 through 25. So if you're using the Blue Pew Bible in front of you, you can turn to page 960. Please stand for the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. Okay, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, 1 through 25. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments, such as the flute or the harp, do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? for you will be seeking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if I give you thanks, otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others, instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus, tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If, therefore, the whole church comes together and for all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, Will they not say that you are not out of your minds? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so, falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. This is the word of the Lord. 
Let me pray for us once more. Oh, gracious Father, we thank you for this holy scripture that was just read. And now we're asking for the Holy Spirit to accompany the preaching of your word that your people might be built up, that the lost may find Jesus, and that your name will be glorified in all of that. It's in that great name we pray. Amen. Well, church, this morning's text, I hope you recognize, is divisive. Not only because it addresses an issue that was divisive to the first century Corinthian church, but because the church today is still divided on what to do with a text like this. Some are going to say that we don't preach or teach a text like this enough. That we're worse off for ignoring it because its subject matter is of such vital importance to the spiritual health of the church today. Others are going to say that there's really no need or urgency to preach this text because its subject matter is now irrelevant to the church today. Those are obviously two very different opinions. Are we dealing with a text that a church like ours has conveniently been ignoring and not putting into practice? Or is this a text with historical significance? You know, it does describe for us what corporate worship looked like in the early church. That's helpful to know, but doesn't really have much practical relevance for today. Should we approach this text with a sense of guilt for not actively applying it in the life of our church, or with a sense of apathy because it's not all that applicable. Those are two ways of looking at the same text. But what if there's another approach? What if we recognize that there are key issues in this text that actually are no longer directly applicable, but at the same time to recognize that there are still biblical principles here that are very relevant to how we conduct ourselves as the church. Let me just put it plainly. As a church, I don't think we need to feel guilty because we aren't putting into practice the gifts of prophecy and tongues. I think we can have a clean conscience about the fact that you don't see that happening in the life of our church in our corporate gatherings. And I'm going to try to explain later as to why that is, that you can have a clean conscience about that. But I do think our consciences should be pricked if we were to simply dismiss this text as irrelevant for us today. I I mean, I would honestly feel guilty if we were to just kind of skip over this passage as we were going through the book of 1 Corinthians. We need to preach this text. It does have practical relevance. It is urgent for the spiritual health of the church today, even if even if we're, if we're not putting into practice either prophecy or tongues. I think there are still biblical principles that we are called to learn and called to put into practice in the life of our church today. So friends, let's, let's dive into this text and let's consider those principles. So if you want to follow along, look in your bulletin, you'll find an outline. And first we're going we're gonna to address the relevancy of prophecy in tongues today. But second, I want us to consider the importance of intelligible worship. And third, we're going to consider the power of evangelistic worship. So that's where we're going today. Let's, uh, let's start by considering the relevancy 
of prophecy and tongues as spiritual gifts in the church today. Now, no doubt, if you're considering in Paul's day, no doubt these subjects were relevant to the first century Corinthian church. I mean, clearly, when Paul is telling his readers in verse 1, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy, no one questions that he really meant that. And so when he says later on in verse 5, now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy, we acknowledge his sincerity. He, he's really expecting that and wanting that for the Corinthians. At the time of this letter, Paul recognized the relevancy of prophecy and tongues, and he wished for these gifts to be expressed in the life of the Corinthian church. But the problem the problem was that some in the church were wrongfully elevating certain gifts, in particular, the gift of speaking in tongues, treating that gift as a sign of one's spirituality, as a sign of one's godliness, especially over and against others in the church who lack that gift. And so that's why Paul had to write chapters 12 and chapters 13 to correct that very div div uh, divisive way of thinking about gifts. In chapter 13 that we looked at last week, he basically described the Corinthians as being childish in their attitude. Like a child easily distracted by a flashy new toy, these Corinthians were chasing after the, the flashy and the spectacular spiritual gifts because it made much of them. It built up their ego. It built up their, their reputation. But Paul's whole point is that if love is what's driving you, if love is what's animating you, if you exercise the spiritual gift of love, which is at the disposal of every single Christian, then you would be pursuing spiritual gifts that actually benefit and build up the whole church. Not just thinking about yourself, but thinking about the church as a whole. And that's why he starts off chapter 14 by saying, to desire prophecy especially. Desire that gift of prophecy especially over the gift of tongues. Our text is really just one sustained argument for why prophecy is greater than tongues. Look at verse 5 again. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets. So that the church may be built up. Now, let's be clear with this text, with this verse. By calling the one who has the gift of prophecy greater, Paul's not suggesting that that particular believer is more spiritual or just inherently better. Remember, what he means by greater here in, is, is greater in the sense that when the whole church comes together, the gift of prophecy is more edifying. It's more beneficial to the whole versus the gift of tongues, especially when you're dealing with uninterpreted tongues. In other words, prophecy is functionally greater in the context of the church's assembly for corporate worship, which again explains the command in verse 1 to earnestly desire the spiritual gift of prophecy. He really meant that when he wrote that to the Corinthians. But of course, that just brings us back to the question of what do we do today with a text like this? 
I mean, are we supposed to be actively obeying this apostolic command that you find in verse 1? Are each of us supposed to be actively desiring the gift of prophecy? Well, if prophecy and tongues are still normative gifts to be exercised in the church today, that means if the Holy Spirit is still distributing these gifts to believers as he wills, then Yeah, we should read and apply verse 1 like we would any other apostolic command of Paul's in the rest of this letter. If it's an apostolic command, then of course we should obey it. But that just begs the question. Are these gifts still normative for today? Well, let's just be clear right up front that this is a secondary issue where there can be legitimate disagreement between fellow Christians as to how to answer that question. By the very nature of this issue, though, you have to recognize that you can't keep a conviction on this issue purely in the realm of just the theoretical, just the intellectual. Because on a practical level, a church has to decide whether or not to practice and promote prophecy and interpreted tongues within its corporate worship. I mean, you can just believe whatever you want in theory. The real question is, what does the church put into practice? What do you actually do together or not do together when you gather as the church? Well, at HCC, you already know, or you quickly will observe, if you're new to our church, that we don't practice and we don't promote prophecy or tongues. And it's only fair to explain why. Why, as a church, do we have a clean conscience as in, in relation to a text like this, in, in spite of how it appears at first glance that we might be ignoring a direct apostolic command? Why do we have a clean conscience? Well, in, I was assuming that you do. I mean, if you've been here long enough and you haven't seen these things been practiced and I haven't heard any complaints yet, so I'm assuming that you don't seem bothered by a text like this. All right, well, let's make sure we have biblical reasons for that. Well, it's because we recognize as a church that there is biblical warrant for concluding that the gifts of prophecy and tongues have ceased to be given to the church today on a normative basis. And again, like I said just a moment ago, this is a secondary matter. So you can disagree with the church's practice. But I hope at least you'll consider the biblical rationale for why you don't see prophecy or tongues being practiced in our church. Now, last week, we looked at 1 Corinthians 13, where in verse 8, Paul specifically stated in verse 8 of chapter 13 that prophecies will pass away and tongues will cease. And he mentions a stopping point for the distribution of all of these spiritual gifts, that being when the perfect comes. Now, I think there are actually some poor arguments here in 1 Corinthians 13 for the cessation of prophecy and tongues as spiritual gifts given to the church today. Especially when it's argued that the perfect in chapter 13 is referring to the close of the New Testament canon when the book of Revelation was completed, or or at least when the church officially recognized a closed canon by the end of the 4th century. 1 Corinthians 13, verses 8 to 10, 
is sometimes used to argue that these gifts, prophecy and tongues, these type of revelatory gifts, have ceased with the completion of the New Testament. Now, I think there is merit to that ultimate conclusion, but 1 Corinthians 13 verse 8 is a poor proof text to make that argument, is what I'm trying to say. Because in context, the perfect in chapter 13 seems to be referring to Christ himself and his second coming. When Christ returns, then all of these spiritual gifts, all these gifts that, that offer us partial revelation, partial knowledge, they're going to cease because the fullness has come. We shall know fully even as we have been fully known. So, friends, I, I, I would not turn to 1 Corinthians 13 to argue for the cessation of these gifts. But I would suggest that 1 Corinthians 13 doesn't exclude the possibility that some of these gifts may have ceased prior to the perfect coming, to Jesus' second return. Look, I mean, just to be honest here, if this was the only relevant verse on this subject, if all we had was for evidence 1 Corinthians 13, well then, yeah, to be honest, I, I probably would conclude that prophecy and tongues continue today until Christ returns. And I, I, I would be feeling guilty for, for not desiring prophecy and not trying to put it into practice in our corporate worship. But then there's a text like Ephesians chapter 2, Verse 20. Ephesians 2, verse 20, because in that letter, Paul is arguing that the church is, quote, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So there, Paul is ref referring to the revelatory ministry of New Testament apostles and, I would argue, New Testament prophets. Because we know Paul doesn't have in mind, in this coupling here, he has, he's not thinking about Old Testament prophets. Because in a few verses later, if you're looking in Ephesians 3, verse 5, he's going to say that the mystery of Christ, the gospel, has not been made known to those in generations past, like the Old Testament prophets, but, quote, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. So again, it's the same coupling here of apostles and prophets. And here in chapter 3, it's in a context that clearly is referring to all those living in the New Testament era as those who are recipients of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So when he says the church is built up on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, he's talking about New Testament apostles, New Testament prophets. Now, why in the world is that such an important point to make? Because if Paul is suggesting that New Testament prophets, uh, apostles and New Testament prophets play an equivalent role in laying down the foundation of the church, then the words of a New Testament prophet would carry the same inspired, infallible authority as an apostle, as apostolic teaching, as the words in Paul's letters. So this is why... Therefore, it's argued that there is no fundamental difference in the nature of New Testament prophecy compared to Old Testament prophecy. 
They both reveal inspired, infallible words of the Lord that are authoritative in nature. Prophecy is prophecy, regardless of which covenant God's people are currently under. That's what's being argued. Now, I know there are those who see it differently. There are those who recognize a form of New Testament prophecy that is of a different nature, that is of a lesser authority that could be fallible. And they would point uh, for that argument to chapter 14, 1 Corinthians 14, and they would look later on to the text we're looking at next week, uh, to verse 29, where prophets are instructed to weigh what other New Testament prophets are saying in church. Or they're going to point to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 20 to 21. 1 Thessalonians 5, 20 to 21, Paul says, Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. And so it's going to be argued that the instructions to weigh or to test prophecy implies the, the, the fallible nature of New Testament prophecy, that New Testament prophets could make mistakes, and that's why you need other prophets to help weigh or to test what they say. But I hope you see that, that you could also argue that the weighing or the testing of prophecy is not intended to determine the accuracy of the content, but actually the identity of the speaker. Is he or she a true or false prophet? And that's determined by judging what they're saying and judging it to either Old Testament scripture or to present day apostolic teaching. Because any error in comparison to what they recognize as already inspired words from God, any error would then rule out not just the accuracy of that particular message being delivered, but the veracity of that particular person claiming to have the gift of prophecy. So, Friends, if we're correct in our understanding, if the teaching of New Testament apostles and the prophecy of New Testament prophets are similar in nature and in authority, then just as most Christians, including charismatics, would agree that the gift of apostleship and apostles has ceased since the close of the New Testament canon, that the Lord is no longer giving us more apostles today, well, then that logic could be extended as well to the gift of prophecy and prophets, that in the same way the Lord is no longer giving them to the church today. Now, the gifts of apostleship, the gifts of prophecy, of course, they were vital for the early church. But the apostles and the prophets laid down the foundation of the church, which, of course, is centered on Christ being the cornerstone and preserved for us in Holy Scripture. So because of that, then now these two revelatory gifts have ceased to be given to the church because their function has been fulfilled. That's going to be the argument. And, of course, the same argument could also be applied uh, to interpreted tongues, of, of interpreting the, the, the tongues that, 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 that are spoken. Because if you just look at verse 5, according to verse 5, an interpreted tongue would be functionally similar to prophecy. They would both convey inspired, infallible, authoritative words from the Lord. But, of course, now that the foundation of the church has been established, that's why it's argued that the gifts of prophecy and tongues have ceased. 
Okay, so that's my case for why we don't practice or promote either of those gifts in our church. But, friends, I, I still want us to be charitable towards those Christians or those churches that still do. So how should we understand what's being practiced in more charismatic churches today? Well, we definitely should not look down upon them. And we should not conclude that what they're doing is necessarily sinful or demonic. We shouldn't disparage these churches, especially if they take Scripture seriously and they practice whatever they're practicing in an orderly way according to 1 Corinthians 14. Now, when they claim to be prophesying or to be speaking in tongues, I don't doubt that they're experiencing something profound. I just wouldn't equate those experiences with New Testament prophecy or New Testament tongues. And it really just comes down to definitions. I think it's more likely that what's being practiced is not the revealing of prophecy, but the sharing of impressions. Now, these impressions could really come from the Spirit, and they could be strikingly accurate, but they could also err. So I think it's more careful and it's more sensitive to avoid labeling what's being shared as prophecy. And how about we just call it a spirit-led impression? I think that's more sensible than always having to tack on all of these, these multiple qualifications and nuances. Every time you, you're telling someone, I'm sharing a prophecy to you. Oh, but I don't mean this kind of prophecy. You know, I mean, why don't we just call it something else? Just avoid that language which I think helps to avoid an authoritarianism where that person you're trying to encourage with that message feels obligated to oblige whatever you share because they don't want to go against a word from the Lord himself. So you give others actually the freedom to receive or to not receive an impression, but you bind their consciences, on the other hand, if you suggest, thus saith the Lord. You see the, the difference? There is a greater authority if you're claiming, thus saith the Lord, here's what you need to, to listen to and to do. I think it's more sensitive and more healthy to just share your impression, but to avoid the language of prophecy. And when it comes with tongues, again, I think it comes down to definitions. Are the tongues being described here in 1 Corinthians 14 of the same nature as, for example, the tongues being described in Acts chapter 2, where there it's clearly referring to actual languages that the speaker himself uh, doesn't know? And now we can't go into all the arguments for here. Uh, we talked a little bit about it a couple weeks ago. But my point is that even if, you are, uh, even if you're convinced the New Testament tongues are actual languages and that, therefore, what's happening today is not the same thing. You don't have to disparage charismatics who practice what they call tongues and insult their experience as being, you know, just gibberish and you're just speaking nonsense. I don't think we need to, 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 to think or to speak that way of charismatics. Now, you see, the modern form of tongues being practiced in charismatic churches today don't resemble any kind of, of language. And, and, and they wouldn't even claim 
it to be. They, they, they often speak of this being so, um, uh, some kind, other kind of, of speech that, that, that is not comparable to other languages. And so what's practiced, I think, could be more accurately defined in our day, not as New Testament tongues, but as ecstatic utterances. And I don't doubt that expressing these utterances does provide some form of emotional and psychological and even spiritual benefit to the one who's practicing it. I think we can respect that, while at the same time distinguishing that from the New Testament spiritual gift. We have no reason to disparage a charismatic for practicing ecstatic utterances, as long as they're not elevating that experience to now be normative for all Christians, expecting everyone to have to do that, to join with them, because that would actually oppose Paul's very point here in this text. So bottom line, we're making the case that the gifts of prophecy and tongues are not normatively given anymore to the church. So yes, that command that you read in verse 1, to desire the gifts of prophecy, yeah, that's, that's no longer relevant and binding upon you. But friends, that does not mean that this text is now irrelevant to us. I mean, we can still approach this text just like how you would typically approach most of the chapters in the book of Leviticus, right? I mean, you can, I mean, we could just, I mean, we haven't done so. Maybe we should. We should preach through Leviticus. And we would recognize in that book there are many commands no longer applicable to us because, why? Because they've been fulfilled. Fulfilled in Christ, in the gospel. But at the same time, preaching through Leviticus can be very beneficial for the church. We can still deduce many relevant principles from those texts that would still apply to our lives and to our life together. And so, of course, that just begs the question, then what are the relevant principles in this particular text? That leads to our second point, the importance of intelligible worship. And that's the main thrust of Paul's argument here in chapter 14, that the love of Christ is going to compel you to not just desire, but to faithfully use the spiritual gifts that more directly build up the church. Which, of course, in his argument, is gifts that communicate God's word intelligibly to God's people. So let's just look at verses 2 to 4. His point here is that when you speak in tongues, you might be speaking to God, who, of course, can understand all languages. But your speech is going to be unintelligible to everyone else. In other words, you might be communing with God through an uninterpreted tongue, but you're not communicating with other people. So in the end, that experience, it might be beneficial to you. It might build up your faith, but it doesn't build up the church. But prophecy, on the other hand, can't. Quote, the one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. As we said earlier, that it's, it's the edifying nature of prophecy that does make it functionally greater than the gift of tongues when you're in the context of a church's worship service. Again, listen to verse 5. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. Now, starting in verse 6, Paul goes on to explain that uninterpreted tongues are unprofitable in the life of the church 
because of the fact that they're unintelligible. And he makes an, an analogy using musical instruments, a flute, a harp, a military bugle. I mean, no matter the instrument, they're all useless if they fail to make a distinct and discernible sound. It's just noise otherwise. And the same goes for the human voice. If a tongue is spoken in church, but it goes uninterpreted, then it remains a foreign sound offering no benefit to to all those who can't understand it. Listen to verses 9 to 11 again. So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. Now, friends, I think it goes without saying that this text is especially relevant to a multilingual immigrant church just like ours. You see, the importance of intelligible worship. That biblical principle being taught here in this text, that actually explains the founding of Houston Chinese Church and its vision of reaching the Chinese-speaking immigrant community with the gospel being preached in their heart language. If they don't know the meaning of the language, then the preached word of salvation will remain foreign to them. So that's why you have a Houston Chinese Church. That's why you have Congregations like the one coming up after us, preaching in Mandarin, or right now, preaching in Cantonese. And the same principle of intelligible worship explains the formation of this service, of our English worship service. I mean, it's aimed at those whose heart language is English. And that's why, that's why whenever we do, on those, on those few occasions where we do have a joint worship service with the Chinese congregation, we make sure in those services that there is translation into both languages. And I know, when you think of translated services, you're like, oh man, it's going to be a translated service. I know, it feels tedious, right? You know, but translation is important because unintelligible prayer Praise or preaching is not going to build up people's faith. But while that remains generally true, I mean, that is the principle here, I do want to add this, though. I do think there is something valuable when, from time to time, in a multilingual church like ours, there are going to be some times that we're going to have to listen to a prayer being prayed or a song being sung in a language that we don't understand. Now, I know many of you are bilingual, so you can understand both, but there are many, including myself, that won't be able to understand when it's being prayed in Chinese or being sung in Chinese. But it's in those moments that we are reminded of the global nature of our God and of our faith. We're reminded in those moments when we can't understand what our brother or sister is praying or singing, we're reminded that the official language of the kingdom of heaven is not English. And when we do get a chance to hear our Chinese side brothers and sisters praying or praising in their native tongue with such passion and eloquence, then we realize just how much of a loving sacrifice they make every time when they switch 
to English, and they default to English when they're around us. When we're in a meeting together, or when we're in a conversation together, they're making a sacrifice. That is a 1 Corinthians 13 kind of loving sacrifice being made when they speak a foreign tongue in order to have unity with us who can only speak English. Let's not forget that. Let's not take that for granted, the loving sacrifice that our brothers and sisters in our Chinese congregation make for us. So yes, while it may be true that we should always try to make our worship intelligible, because that is the bigger goal. I mean, I, mean, I mean, that is what we should be doing. But I hope you see the bigger goal is it's all about building up the church, right? Building up our church. And so that means in our context at HCC, that sometimes means bearing with prayer or praise spoken or sung in a language that you don't understand so that another brother or sister can understand. And that's really at the heart of Paul's command in verse 12. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. To those Corinthians who are so focused on excelling in their use of tongues, Paul exhorts them to channel all that energy, all that eagerness towards whatever is going to build up, not you, but the church as a whole. In this case, to to commit yourself to intelligible prayer and intelligible praise that addresses not just your spirit, but also your mind. That's his whole point in verses 13 to 15. And then he goes on to say that to praise or to pray in an uninterpreted tongue, in a language that you or your fellow worshipers don't understand, what that ends up doing is bypassing your mind, bypassing their mind, and no one is edified. No one can join you in agreement with that prayer or praise. Listen to verses 16 to 17. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. Now, the outsider in this case probably doesn't refer to a non-Christian but to a fellow Christian simply in a position of not knowing and understanding the spoken tongue. The point is that that fellow worshiper can only join you in prayer by verbally expressing with you an amen, which, you know, in, in, uh, which literally means let it be so. It's a, it's a way of expressing agreement with a speaker. They can only agree with your prayer if they can understand your prayer. Which is why in verses 18 to 19, Paul says that in a corporate worship setting, he would rather speak five intelligible words that other people can understand and say amen to than to pray 10,000 words in a tongue that no one understands. Now this emphasis on being able to enable others to say amen to your prayer or praise implies that our corporate worship is clearly not meant to be some kind of spectator activity where you just you know, passively sit out there in the pews and just, just kind of sit back and just watch whatever's happening up here on stage. Now, corporate worship is active and participatory by nature. And now, I think that's obvious when you know, the, the music team is leading you in singing songs aloud. So when you are actually singing out loud, obviously that's one way to participate. But even as you listen to a prayer being made 
or to a sermon being preached. Notice how there's an expectation in the early church that worshipers would verbalize a hearty amen. And they were participating in the intelligible worship of the church by affirming their agreement to the biblical truth that's being prayed or preached. And so church, as an application here for us, I think we should be far more free to verbally express an amen as the Spirit leads. And there you go. There you go. And not just to see that as a a cultural feature that you're only going to find in among certain cultures or certain churches. You know, I, I think it's, it's a biblical expression of gospel unity and agreement. Amen. Amen. So the importance of intelligible worship is one of the relevant principles that we can still draw from this text, even if we're not practicing the gifts of prophecy or tongues. But there's one more. There's one more principle here, and that's in verses 20 to 25. This leads to our third and final point, the power of evangelistic worship. Another reason why Paul is against the use of uninterpreted tongues in a worship service is because of how off-putting they are to unbelievers. In verse 21, he quotes from Isaiah chapter 28, verse 11. This is Isaiah 28, 11. And there, in that Old Testament text, the context is all about God's judgment coming upon unbelieving Israelites in the form of an invasion by a foreign army, the Assyrians. And the point is that the unbelieving Israelites don't know what the Assyrians are saying. All they hear is just a strange foreign tongue. But what they do know and they can't deny is that that language, that voice, is God's judgment upon them coming from the Assyrians. So they don't know what the Assyrians are actually saying, but they know the whole thing is God's judgment. And the same way Paul is saying that when an unbeliever comes to church and hears someone speaking in a strange tongue, it's also going to be received as a sign of judgment. That uninterpreted tongue is a sign for unbelievers functioning as a sign of judgment. But prophecy, on the other hand, Paul says, is a sign for believers, serving as a positive sign of God's desire to bless you. This is what he says in verse 22. Thus tongues are a sign not for believers but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers but for believers. Believers, And he goes on in verse 23 to lay out a scenario here. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? So he's saying that when unbelievers observe uninterpreted tongues being spoken in the church's gathering, they in that moment are reminded of how much of an outsider they are from the rest of the church. It communicates that you don't really belong here in God's house. The foreign, unintelligible nature of uninterpreted tongues is going to drive them further away from God. That's Paul's point. Because that's not how he wants unbelievers to respond when they show up in church. He doesn't want them to come and to hear a sign of judgment. No, Paul wants unbelievers to be blessed, that is, to be saved. And that's why he's against the practice of uninterpreted tongues happening in corporate worship. Because our worship ought to be intelligible. And when that's so, when it's comprehensible, then our worship has the power 
to be evangelistic. God can use our corporate worship as a means of saving the lost. Listen to verses 24 to 25. But if all all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all, the secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so, falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Now the point here is that corporate worship is not just for Christians. I I know some are under the impression, some are under the impression that our worship services are not ideal spaces to be inviting our seeker friends. That all the preaching and praying and praising is just going to be too much for them. It's going to go over their heads. I'll I'll just invite them to the small group instead. Or I'll just wait till, you know, we have some special evangelistic service in church. Well, clearly, in the New Testament church, unbelievers were expected to be present in their regular weekly worship. And I think it should be no different for us. Members should be inviting non-Christians to worship. And leaders should be preparing for worship with the assumption that non-Christians are present. We should always strive to make our worship intelligible and comprehensible to the uninitiated, to those who've never read a Bible before. Can someone who has never cracked open a Bible still be able to comprehend what's happening here in our service. Now, of course, that doesn't, mean, that doesn't mean watering down our preaching. It doesn't mean avoiding hard subjects that come up in the text. I mean, we're not designing our worship services for seekers. No, we're designing it for God. God is the primary audience of our worship. We are here to glorify him, which in turn is going to edify his church That is what every single worship service is aiming to do. But Paul's whole point is that if we keep everything intelligible and comprehensible as we pursue that goal of glorifying God and building up his church, our worship actually has evangelistic power to save the lost. When non-Christians hear the gospel and they witness Christians having authentic experiences of God's goodness and grace, they themselves can be cut to the heart and converted to Christ, even in that moment. That's why we try every Sunday morning to clearly proclaim the gospel in our praise, prayers, and preaching. Because we believe the gospel will not just edify the Christians, but evangelize the non-Christians. That's why we never tire of preaching the good news about the word of God who became flesh, who in a very real sense was interpreted and translated into human form in order to make a foreign God knowable to sinners like us. That's the gospel. That's why we love here in our service to sing all the time of Jesus' life and death and resurrection. That's why it's our theme. That's why we're always talking about Jesus and what he has done for us. For those of you who are Christians, regularly hearing the good news is what you need for the building up of your faith. And if you're here and you're not yet a Christian, 
This is what you need to hear and believe. If you want to know God personally, then you first need to recognize that his name is Jesus and that he is there to save you. If you put your trust in him, you will be saved and you will be a part of his church. Let me pray for you. Father, I do pray that even today, even in this moment, that you will do a dual work of edifying your church, edifying believers, and evangelizing and saving unbelievers. That in this moment, Lord, you will do a mighty miracle, a mighty work in our hearts. That we would come away, all of us come away, convicted, cut to the heart, recognizing that you are truly in this place. In your name we pray.